I think you're quickly getting a sense of the complexity of the code. So it's not surprising that there will be differences between what is deductible, what is income between the taxpayer and the Internal Revenue Service. And we're going to now see our three branches of government, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial, all play a role in giving some guidance as to what the Internal Revenue Code means. Let's talk first about the primary taxing authority that comes from the legislative branch of the government. Congress writes the governing legislation. It has given us what is now the Internal Revenue Code of 1986, which is the codification of all relevant tax laws, not just income tax laws. There are 61 tax treaties between the United States and various countries that can provide governance of the administration of the tax laws for citizens who are going back and forth between countries. And perhaps the best source of interpreting any ambiguities under the code will be the legislative history, which is referred to as the committee reports. We saw earlier in the crafting of legislation, the House of Representatives has a role, the United States Senate has a role, and the governing committees of each, House Ways and Means, Senate Finance Committee, they can issue committee reports on some or all of each of the particular pieces of code changes that are in any particular bill. The executive branch is responsible for enforcing the laws written by our legislature. The President of the United States is constitutionally empowered to enforce the collection of taxes. The President delegates that function to one of the executive branches, the Department of the Treasury, which further delegates it through its agent, our friends, the Internal Revenue Service. The Treasury has very broad administrative authority about providing guidance on the meaning of the tax laws. And some of its techniques for providing that guidance are as follows. The first and most important will be Treasury regulations. They are presumed to be correct, not surprising, and they usually survive taxpayer challenges in the courts, although they can be overturned if they are ambiguous or if the regulations exceed the scope of the law they are trying to provide guidance for. Revenue rulings are useful for all taxpayers. It provides guidance by the Internal Revenue Service on commonly recurring questions of law that it seems to be noticing in its administration of the code. The last is private letter rulings. They are sought by taxpayers for guidance on particular transactions that have either complete, have been completed or are contemplated. While private letter rulings are authority for the requesting taxpayer, they may not be relied upon by other taxpayers, though they do provide insight on IRS thinking on often complicated issues. And of course, we have the judicial branch. We have trial courts, the United States Tax Court, the U.S. District Court for the number of circuits throughout the United States, the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. We have a system of appellate courts, the United States District Court of Appeals, 
for which appeals from the tax court and the U.S. District Court go. We also have the U.S. Court of Appeals. Finally, we have the Court of Ultimate Last Resort, the United States Supreme Court, which generally rarely hears tax cases. The taxpayer has no constitutional right for the, to have the Supreme Court hear their case. They can request the court to hear the case, but they're not required to do so. It's inevitable there's going to be conflict between the Internal Revenue Service and the taxpayer as to what is the amount of liability owed. The IRS has the ability to assess additional taxes within three years from the filing of a non-fraudulent return. Notice I say non-fraudulent return. If your return is fraudulent or if you have filed no return at all, the IRS is not bound by any statute of limitations. For those who are not lawyers or are not familiar with strategies for managing tax litigation, the plethora of courts may all seem overwhelming. But I think you can reduce your study of the courts to three straightforward questions, and then I think things fall into place. Uh, the first question is, must the taxpayer pay the deficiency and then sue for refund? Does the taxpayer want a jury of his or her peers? And where can a taxpayer appeal a loss at the trial level? If a taxpayer decides not to pay the tax, then she or he has only one judicial form, and that is the United States, United States Tax Court, where your case will be heard by a judge from the U.S. Tax Court. You will not be entitled to a jury trial, but your case will be held, heard before an expert. If you feel the need for a, a jury of your peers to try facts, then bringing a suit for refund, paying the tax and then suing for refund in the U.S. District Court is going to be your option. And where can you go uh, should you lose at the trial court level? Well, with the loss in a tax court, you can appeal to the U.S. Court, the U.S. District Court of Appeals. If you lose in the district court, again, the Court of Appeals for the particular circuit that you're in. And keep in mind, of course, that if you lose at those levels, appeal to the Supreme Court is possible, though the odds are low that the Supreme Court will decide to hear your case. Let's see if we can hit the highlights of some of the concepts we've gone through. We have a few true or false. The first question asks, Congress has the power to tax all income from whatever source derived. And that, in fact, is true. Theoretically, there's nothing stopping the Congress from literally taxing all income with a rate of 100%. That, of course, would be counterproductive. Citizens would not only revolt, but I can assure you in a year or two after an enactment of such a tax, the Congress would have a change of heart. So we have the Congress having the ability to tax all types of income unless it's specifically excluded. Our next question is a true-false. 
Regulations written by the Internal Revenue Service represent the unchallengeable official interpretation of the Internal Revenue Code of 1986. Well, if you were to eliminate the phrase, the unchallengeable, you'd have a correct statement because the regulations written by the, the service are the official interpretation. However, they may be challenged. The challenges are often not successful, but nonetheless, they can be challenged. Question three, prepayment of tax and then a claim for refund may be brought only in the U.S. District Court. That's false because a similar suit could be brought in the U.S. Federal Court of Claims. Question four, a redetermination of a tax deficiency without any payment of it is possible in the United States Tax Court. And that, of course, is true. And that's one of the most appealing parts of litigating in the U.S. Tax Court. Finally, question five, the Supreme Court is not required to hear any tax case. That is correct. Not only is the Supreme Court not required to hear any tax case, it's not required to hear any case at all.